I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're continuing to work through this marvelous section here in verses 1 through 9 as Paul is coming to the close of his letter to the church at Philippi. Alistair Begg, pastor at Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, was at a Ligonier conference in 2016 preaching a sermon. And in his sermon, he said this. He said, I was at a church in California just a few weeks ago. I was staying with friends and I went down to the church and I was excited because I get to go now and I don't have to do anything at all except do whatever they tell me to do. It's a delight as a pastor to be able to do that. (laughs) And so I sat there and I waited for it to begin and it was quite fascinating actually. They had big screens. They had a clock on the screens. And when I got in, it said five minutes. Then it counted down. And eventually it counted down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. And just right on the moment of time, the band began. And I was waiting for David Letterman at that point. (laughs) I didn't know what was going to happen next. Then eventually the band did what it did. And then the person who was to lead the praise, his opening gambit was this. Hey, how do you all feel this morning? He goes on and says this. Well, that was enough for me. We could have had the benediction right there that was so good. And he says, I I thought... What kind of New Testament question is that? How do you all feel this morning? He says, if I told you how I feel, especially in light of the last five minutes, you would question whether I was even a Christian at all. Listen to what he says. He says, so don't ask me that question. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. You see, Alistair Begg understands the Scriptures. He understands what God commands of us as believers. He understands what God's Word says about how we are to worship Him and how we are to live our lives. But we live in a day and an age where people are living their lives driven by their emotions. Driven by their emotions and they're just looking for the next fix. And if they go somewhere and they don't get a fix from it, they'll move on. They'll go to the next place to try and find the next fix for them. And sadly, there are a lot of places today that call themselves churches 
that will give the people what they want. They'll give them their next fix. Because the whole philosophy of the church is to help people come in and have an experience that stirs up their emotions. In fact, I saw a promo video this week from a church in Colorado that said that exact same thing. The senior pastor was in this video and he said this, We have a powerful worship and teaching experience every single week. And it was all smoke and lights. All the flashy stuff. And it's all about the experience. The emotional experience. And if you don't have the experience that I want so that I can get my fix, then I'm out of here. And these people will go and they'll try and find it somewhere else. Why did they do this? Because they are led by their emotions. They're led by their emotions. And let me ask you, is an emotionally led person a person who is standing firm in the Lord? Is an emotionally led person a person we would say is spiritually stable? They're not. That's not a person who's standing firm in the Lord. That's not a spiritually stable person, someone who is led by their emotions, because our emotions change all the time, right? They change all the time. There are times when I don't feel like doing something. There are times, to be honest, when I feel like taking a nap instead of preparing a sermon. And if I was led by my feelings, you wouldn't have a sermon this morning, but I'd be well rested. But God doesn't want us to be led by our emotions. He wants us to be led by our minds, by our thinking. And that's what Paul is going to show us this morning. Paul is going to command us to be led by our minds. Now as a way of reminder, Paul's been telling us here in chapter 4 all about how to stand firm in the Lord. How to be a spiritually stable person. He told us back in verse 1 that we're to stand firm in the Lord in this way. In this way. Way. And we saw a few weeks ago in verses 2 and 3 that we stand firm in the Lord first when we are pursuing unity in the church. As we're pursuing unity in the church, as we're striving to live in harmony with other believers, as we are being peacemakers in the church, we are those who are standing firm in the Lord. And second, we stand firm in the Lord through living a joy-filled life. A life that's full of joy. Paul commands us to rejoice always. To rejoice always. To be living our lives filled with joy as we think about who God is and all that God has done for us. And if we set our minds on those things, 
the things that God has done for us, and who God is, if we set our minds on those things, then that will give us reason to always rejoice, right? Then we live a joy-filled life. And we'll be living a spiritually stable life as we stand firm in the Lord. And then third, we stand firm in the Lord when we are gentle with all men. That is, with all people. Both people inside the church and outside of the church. We treat them with gentleness and grace. We're humble and compassionate toward them instead of acting out in anger and rage. A spiritually stable person is one who is gentle with all people. Then last week we saw a fourth way that we stand firm in the Lord, and that is by being anxious for nothing. Being anxious for nothing. We don't live our lives worried about everything. We're not worried about what we will eat or drink or wear, for the Lord promises to take care of us, right? He has promised that to us. We don't worry about tomorrow because the Lord has tomorrow taken care of. It's all in His hands. He knows what is going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He knows it all. And instead of us worrying about tomorrow, we need to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that He is going to take care of us both today and tomorrow. And live our lives without worrying about anything. That's a spiritually stable person. And then a fifth way that we stand firm in the Lord, which we saw last week, and goes along with not being anxious, instead of being anxious, we pray with thanksgiving. We are to pray with thanksgiving. We sang about it this morning. About living a life of thankfulness. Being thankful to our God. And we do that as we pray unto God. We are to be people of prayer. People who are praying without ceasing, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. What does this prayer show? This prayer shows our trust in the Lord. Prayer shows that we're living our lives not dependent upon ourselves or the circumstances around us. But we live our lives totally dependent upon Christ. We live our lives trusting in God's promises that He's going to work all things out together for good to those who love Him. All things out for our good. And Whatever it is that the Lord has in store for us We are to live our lives with thankful hearts and thanksgiving to our God. Not whining and complaining, but thankful for what the Lord has provided for us and thankful for what He will continue to do in our lives. And a person who is living their life in this manner is a person who is standing firm in the Lord. This is a spiritually stable person. And now we come to our passage for this morning, and we're going to see a sixth way that we stand firm in the Lord. A sixth way that you and I are to stand firm in the Lord. And we're going to see that a person who is standing firm in the Lord is a person who thinks rightly. A person who thinks rightly. In fact, look at Philippians chapter 4 and notice what Paul says in verse 8. 
Philippians 4 and verse 8. He says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now notice that word dwell there at the end of verse 8. This word can mean to calculate by mathematical process or reckon or calculate. But here in this verse, it has the notion of giving careful thought to a matter. It's giving careful thought to a matter. We would think about that even as you calculate out, even in mathematics, you're working out a problem You have to think logically and carefully through that problem so that you come out with the right answer. This word here, to dwell, can be rendered as to think about or to consider or to ponder or to let one's mind dwell on. To let one's mind dwell on. You see, God commands us time and time again to use our minds We need to be people who use our minds. As children of God, we are to be those who think and who think rightly. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. Yet in evil, be infant. Be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. God commands us to be thinkers. Biblical thinking is not optional in the Christian life. In fact, it is a command. We are commanded by God to use our minds and to think rightly. To think biblically. The Psalms speak over and over again about something called meditation. Meditation. Not the meditation of the world that tells you that you need to empty your mind and just let everything go. Oftentimes we hear that word meditation and that's what we think about, right? Sitting with our legs crossed. Humming to ourselves and just breathing out and letting everything go. That's not biblical meditation. It's not what God commands us to do. God never ever tells us to empty our minds. Never. In fact, we're commanded to fill our minds. To fill our minds with the truth. Biblical meditation is meditation that's filling your mind with what is true and right which happens through dwelling upon God's Word. In fact, the Psalms open up and they tell us about the blessed man who meditates upon God's Word. In Psalm 1-2, the psalmist says this, But his delight, that blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The word meditate there in Psalm 1-2 is the Hebrew word hagah, and it means to read in an undertone. It it has the idea of moaning with a low sound and an internal brooding over something in the heart. 
It's reading something and contemplating it and thinking about it deeply in the heart. The psalmist tells us that the blessed man does this because he delights in the law of the Lord. Why does someone meditate upon God's law? Because they delight in it. We're to meditate upon God's word because we take pleasure in it. Thomas Watson says this, He who delights in God's law is often thinking on it. What a man delights in, his thoughts are running upon. Thus, if there is a delight in the things of God, the mind will be musing upon them. Our minds should be thinking upon God's Word all the time. We should delight in it. And because we delight in it, our minds should be thinking about it and controlled by it. Our thinking should be controlled by the Word of God. There's another word in in the Hebrew for meditation, and it is the word sikhah. And it means thoughtful contemplation or to lovingly rehearse or go over in one's mind. I love that definition. To lovingly rehearse and go over in one's mind. To love God's law and to meditate upon it and let it go in your mind over and over and over again. Rehearse it in your mind again and again. We see this word found in Psalm 119.97 where the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. God's law, His word is lovely to rehearse and go over in my mind all the day. The psalmist says it back in chapter 1, day and night. All the time. All day long. My mind should be filled with the Word of God, thinking rightly, because I'm thinking about His Word. You see, God wants us to use our minds. He wants us to use our minds. Now remember, Paul just told us back in verse 6 that we are not to be anxious about anything, right? Be anxious for nothing. And that word anxious there has the idea of a divided mind. A mind that is being pulled apart. You see, Paul loves to talk about the mind because he understands the importance of the mind. And he says, I don't want you to be anxious. You are to be anxious for nothing. You are not to have a divided mind. But you're to be giving thoughtful contemplation to God's word. That's what you're to be fixing your mind on. An anxious mind is a mind that's running wild all over the place and not settled. Going from here to there, divided, all over the place. But what God is commanding us to do in our passage is to give careful thought to a matter. Not to have our minds running all over the place and be divided and pulled apart. But God wants us to think about things in a detailed and logical manner. To use our mind. Specifically, there are eight virtues that Paul is going to give us in which we are to give careful thought so that our character will be shaped by these. But notice how Paul begins this sentence here in verse 8. 
Notice Paul says there, he says, finally. Finally. If you remember this word back in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He uses that word finally there. There Paul used it to introduce a new subject as he's obviously not ending his letter, right? He's not coming to a conclusion because we read finally at the beginning of chapter 3 there and then we still have two more chapters left to go. So he uses that word finally there to introduce a new subject. But here he uses it in our verse in chapter 4 and verse 8 is one commentator says to make the first turn toward concluding this letter. It's that first turn in coming to a conclusion. We're coming to the, to the final end of this letter. And what he's doing here is he's essentially wrapping up these commands on standing firm in the Lord. He's wrapping them up and he's giving us two more here in verses 8 and 9. Two more commands. But he's now taking a turn for the conclusion of his letter and his command here to us, to the church at Philippi, is to think rightly. To think rightly. And he says that this is the job of all Christians. Not just the pastor, not just the elders of the church, not just theologians, but this is the job and the duty of all Christians. That's why he says there, notice what he says. He says, finally what? Brethren. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. Church, this is your job. Church, this is your duty. This is not just for the pastor to do, not just for the elders of the church to do. This is your duty. This is your job. And what you must do as you're standing firm in the Lord. What does Paul want them to think about or to dwell upon? Well, as I said, there are eight virtues that Paul lists here. Eight virtues that we are to dwell on so that we might think rightly as believers and stand firm in the Lord. What are they? We're going to work our way through these eight here. Notice the first one there. He says, whatever is true. Whatever is true. That word true there indicates that which conforms to reality. That which conforms to reality. To the facts as they actually are. Things that are true. You see, God is all about the truth. He's all about the truth. The battle in this world is not a battle for power. Listen. The battle in this world is not a battle for power. It's a battle for the truth. It's a battle for the truth. Truth is of utmost importance. Why? Because God is true. Because God is true. Listen to what John the Baptist said in John 3.33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. That God is true. That God is true. And Jesus said in John 8.26, I have many things to speak to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. God is true. Then Jesus said of himself in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth and the life i am the way the truth and the life what did 
Jesus say about Satan in John 8, 44? We read it this morning in our scripture reading. What did he say? He said he's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar. But God always speaks the truth because he is truth. And listen, the goal of Satan is to get us to believe his lies. That's the goal. He wants us to believe his lies. He wants to set everything before our eyes in such a way as to distort what is in fact reality. Doing a pretty good job of it, isn't he? Isn't that what he did in the garden? He lied to Eve and he wanted her to follow after his lies. Has God really said? He's a liar. And he's been doing that ever since. Because that's his nature. That's who he is. He just lies. In fact, his, his goal is to disguise himself as light so that we can be led into the darkness, right? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's not going to come at you with a pitchfork, black, darkness, looking evil. He's going to disguise himself as an angel of light so that he can draw you into the darkness to get you to believe his lies. And he's doing a great job of it today. We have people today who are now confused about what a male and female are. You ask the question, what is a woman to a woman? And you get a blank stare. That's where we're at in our society today. They don't even know what reality is. Because they continue to believe the Lies. They believe the lies. You see, it's a battle for the truth. It's a battle for the truth. And the truth is revealed in God's Word. Whatever God says about any subject is the truth. Whatever He says, He has the final say-so, and therefore His Word is true. Why is the truth so important? Hold your finger in Philippians 4 and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul in Ephesians 4 is talking about the unity of the Spirit. And then he talks about how Christ has given gifts to His church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints. Notice what he says in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, he says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but, notice this, speaking the what? The truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 
You see, spiritual growth only happens by the truth. It's only by the truth. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Speak the truth to one another. Do it in love, but speak the truth. It's that truth then that allows us to grow up, to mature as believers. Remember what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17? What did he say there? John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's all about the truth. The way that you and I grow in our walk with Christ, the way that we are sanctified is by the truth. But sadly, people are looking for all kinds of other ways to grow. They think that just by showing up to a church and getting some emotional high, that that is somehow going to sanctify them. It's not. It's not how we grow. It's not true. Jesus did not say sanctify them by the music. He didn't say that. Or sanctify them by the feel-good messages that make you all warm and fuzzy inside that are void of truth. No, we're sanctified by the truth. We're sanctified by the truth. Sadly, we live in a day where the question is not, is it true? The question is, how did it make you feel? How did it make you feel? And that's why Alistair Begg is at a church and they're all over. Where the pastor stands up there and says, how is everybody feeling this morning? I'm feeling tired and I want to go home. That's not the question. The question is, is it true? Is it true? But sadly, everybody's asking, how did it make you feel? And then those feelings lead people all over the place. One day it makes them feel good. The next day it makes them feel bad. The next day they're happy. The next day they're sad. And there's no spiritual stability when a person is led like this. None. They're tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. That's what Paul is talking about there in Ephesians 4. Don't be tossed around as children here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, the lies, the deceit of men, the lies of the enemy. Don't be carried along by them. Stand firm in the truth and speak truth to one another. Jesus tells us that the Word of God is the truth and we're to be sanctified and to grow in our walk with Christ not by our feelings, but by the truth. So the question that we should always be asking is this. Is it true? Is it true? In fact, isn't that what the Bereans did in Acts 17? Remember the Bereans in Acts 17? They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They wanted to know, was it true? And they knew where to find out the truth. Where was it found? 
in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. They wanted to know if what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was preaching was the truth. They weren't about to accept accept some message from Paul that just made them warm and fuzzy inside. They wanted to know whether or not it was true. And so we need to set our minds on the truth and to dwell on the truth. And in order to grow and in order to stand firm in the Lord, we need to dwell on the truth. Turn back to Philippians 4 and look at our verse there. Paul continues on with the second virtue there. Whatever is true. And secondly, he says, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. This word honorable means worthy of respect or entitled to honor. It's that thing which inspires reverence or awe. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.8 that deacons are to be men of dignity, men of honor. It's the same word that's used there. Deacons' wives in 1 Timothy 3.11 must likewise be dignified. They must be women of honor. Titus 2.2, Paul tells us that older men in the church are to be temperate and dignified. It's the same word that's used there. These are to be men and women in the church who are to be honorable, worthy or respected, worthy of respect. You see, there are many things today that are not respectable. Many things that Christians should not be thinking about because these things are not honorable or respectable. They're not worthy of our time or our mental capacity. These these things shouldn't take up space in our minds. We should be thinking upon things that are honorable. Now, this doesn't mean that we just bury our heads in the sand and we don't understand the things that are not pleasant in our world. It's not what Paul is saying here. But the key is, listen, here's the key. We don't fix our minds upon those things. That's the key. We can know what's going on in our world, things that are not honorable. But the key is that we don't fix our minds on those things. We don't allow those dishonorable things to consume our minds or to control our minds. This happens a lot today, right? You turn on the news and all of a sudden your mind can become fixed upon all of these things that are dishonorable. And what God is telling us here is, no, don't fix your mind on those things. Think upon things that are honorable, worthy of respect, pleasant, worthy of our time and our mental capacity. And a person who thinks this way is a person then who is standing firm in the Lord. So we need to dwell on things that are true and honorable, Third, there's a third virtue that Paul says, whatever is right. Whatever is right. This word is different from true above. This word right here means just, right, fair, or equitable. It is something that is defined by its conformity to the character and truth of God. 
One commentator says it this way, to set one's mind on that which is right is to contemplate the nature of God as the plumb line by which all else is evaluated. It's the plumb line by which all else is evaluated. Not only is God true, but being right means that He is the standard by which all things are measured. He is the ultimate standard. Where do we go to find out if something is true or not? To the standard, right? To His Word. We go here. And because His standard is right, then our job is to conform our thinking to that standard. But you see what happens oftentimes when people are led by their emotions is what do they do? They bring the standard down. Why? Because it doesn't make me feel good. And now they're being controlled and led by their emotions. And so all of a sudden they take things and they're measuring everything by how they feel that day. But that's not what we are to do as believers. We're to dwell upon that which is right. We are to constantly think about that standard and measure everything else up to that standard, which is found in God's Word. Let me ask you this. Do you think about things that are consistent with God's law? Or do you allow other standards into your thinking? We're to take all of our thoughts and measure them against what is right. How do we know what is right? God tells us in His Word. It's found in His Word. What Paul is saying here is that a person who thinks upon that which is right is always taking his or her thoughts and measuring them against God's perfect standard. And a person who does that is a person who is spiritually stable and standing firm in the Lord. There's a fourth virtue. Virtue number four, he says, whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Pure means that which is free from defilement. It means stainless. That which will not be contaminated. That which is morally and inwardly pure. You see, our minds are to be fixed upon that which is pure. We're to be thinking pure thoughts. 1 John 3.3 says this, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Christ is pure. Our God is pure. We need to have our hope fixed upon him. And as our hope is fixed upon him, we will continue to purify ourselves. Christ is pure. We're to purify ourselves just as Christ is pure. This word purity here at times refers to sexual purity, but it's also used more widely as well. More widely in, in, a, in a moral sense. One commentator says about this word pure, this word is full of things which are sordid and shabby and soiled and smutty. Many a man gets his mind into such a state that it soils everything of which it thinks. The Christian mind is set on the things which are pure. His thoughts are so clean that they can stand even the scrutiny of God. 
pretty high standard, huh? Purity. That the Christian mind should be thinking such pure thoughts that they can even withstand the scrutiny of God. We're to fix our minds on that which is pure. And listen, there are a lot of things out there that will corrupt our minds, right? All over. Things that will corrupt our minds. Many impurities can get into our minds and cause it to become muddled. Especially in the moral sense. God says that our minds need to be focused on those things which are pure and free from defilement. Things that won't contaminate our minds. But will allow our minds to be clean and stand the scrutiny of God. And the person with a pure mind is one who is able to stand firm in the Lord. Fifth, there's a fifth virtue that Paul gives us. He says, whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. This is the only place that this word lovely here appears in the New Testament. It's a compound word that's made up of two words. Pros, meaning toward, and phileo, meaning to love. And it has the idea of setting our minds on whatever it is that calls forth love. Whatever it is that calls forth love. Or moving toward love. Lovely things. You see, there are minds that are always wanting to call forth vengeance and anger and bitterness and fear. There are minds that are like that. That all they do is they think about anger and bitterness all the time. That's what is controlling their mind. Those bitter and angry thoughts. So what do they do? They continue to move toward those things. But God is telling us here to set our minds upon things that are lovely. The mind that's set on things which are lovely is a mind that is set on things that are admirable and lovable, and gracious, and pleasing to others. It's a mind that is lovely to be around because this person is always focusing on what the Bible says is pleasing and attractive and lovely before God. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 37, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. We must train our minds to turn away from vain things and think upon things that are lovely. And the mind that does that is a mind that is spiritually stable and standing firm. Sixth, and the last in our whatever is statements here, Paul says, a sixth vir- uh, virtue, whatever is of good repute. Whatever is of good repute. This word good repute again is the is it's only used here in the New Testament and it refers to that which is well spoken of. Things that are well spoken of, commendable or or praiseworthy or highly regarded. Think upon those things. It's speaking well of others and focusing on their good things rather than on their faults and their shortcomings. And this is something that we have to train our minds to do, right? We have to train our minds to think high and noble thoughts. 
something that we must discipline our minds to do. And it comes when we saturate our minds with the pure milk of the Word. As we saturate our minds with God's Word, then we will be thinking of whatever is of good repute. Now, those are the six whatever is statements that Paul wants us to focus our minds on. Things that are true and honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute. But now there are two statements that Paul makes that are called conditional statements. Two more left that are conditional statements. Notice he says there in the middle of verse 8, he says, if there is, if there is, Now, he's not saying if as as if this is a possibility, but he's stating this as a fact. And he assumes it to be true for the sake of argument. It's it's like an if-then statement. If this is true, and it is, then this is what you must do. That's what Paul is doing here. It's a first-class conditional statement. Another way that we can say this is, since there are things that are excellent, and since there are things worthy of praise, what do you do then? Dwell on these things. Think upon these things. Now what does Paul mean here by excellent? He means things that are virtuous or morally excellent. It has to do with virtue that is demonstrated in life. In outward excellence. And what Paul is saying here is that we need to set our minds on and plan to act in accordance with whatever is morally excellent. Proverbs 23 7 says this For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As a man thinks within himself, that's who he is. Which means that's how he's going to act out. Whatever he's thinking in his mind will eventually come out in his actions. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 7.20. He says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's from within him. So set your mind on things that are morally excellent. That's what God is telling us to do here. Then he goes on and he says there are things worthy of praise. And what Paul means here is that there are things that are worthy of being commended, commendable things. And so when we're about to act on something, you can ask the question, is this something that is worthy of praise? Ask that in your mind. Or as you're thinking upon something, is this thing that I'm thinking upon, is it worthy of praise? Meaning, is this something that would get praise from God? 1 Corinthians 4.5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. 
there will be praise that comes from God. About what is inside. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, is what I'm thinking about or the action that I'm about to do, is it praiseworthy or something that would receive praise from God? If it is, dwell on it and do it. If it's not, get rid of it. Get it out of your mind so that you won't act upon that. And if you set your mind on these things, you will be a spiritually stable person who is standing firm in the Lord. Notice then Paul's command at the end of the verse. He says, dwell on these things. What things, Paul? Well, the eight spiritual virtues that we just went through. Dwell on these things. Let your mind be consumed with these things. Listen, the key to godly, stable living for the believer begins in the mind. It begins in our mind with our thinking. And there is a battle that is going on right now for your mind. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the spiritual battle, right? Spiritual battle. Oh, we're going to fight the war. What are we going to do? We're going to go into our inner closet. We're going to do this thing. We're going to go and cast out demons. We're going to tell Satan he's not welcome here. All of this stuff that's going on. And people talk about spiritual battle. That, that's the, spirit. the spiritual battle is a battle for the truth. And it happens in the mind. That's the battle. And while the evangelical church today is caught up with feelings, Satan is focused on distorting the truth to get people to think the wrong way. He's after the mind. He's after your mind. He's after my mind. He wants us to think the wrong way. He wants us to believe His lies. That's the battle. In fact, take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us about the spiritual battle here. Second Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3. He says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Notice this in verse 5. We are destroying speculations. Speculations. What are those speculations? Arguments. The Net Bible translates it as that. Arguments. Thoughts. Specifically, false arguments, false ideas, lies. Notice he says, verse 5, We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. These arguments, these false arguments and false ideas that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And what is the knowledge of God? The truth. 
And then he says, and we are taking every what? Thought. You see that? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, the spiritual battle is not a battle with demons and other people. It's a battle against the lies that are raised up against the knowledge of God. It's a battle for the truth. That's the battle. That's why the only offensive weapon in the armor of God is what? The sword. The truth. This is the only offensive weapon. This is where and how the battle is fought. At the truth. Because that's what the battle is all about. It's a battle for the truth. But sadly, many evangelical churches have no clue that this is what the battle is all about. They pay no attention to it because all they care about is whether or not something makes them feel good. And they have no concept of what the battle really is. Listen, church, Satan wants you to be led by your feelings. He wants you to be led by your feelings. But God calls us to be led by our minds, by right thinking. By biblical thinking that's grounded in the truth of God's word. And we need to guard our minds from the garbage of the world. From the lies of the enemy. But the only way that you and I can guard our minds is by filling it with things that are true and honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and praiseworthy. We can sum it all up with this one statement. We must fill our minds with the truth of God's Word. And when we do that, we will be Christians who are standing firm in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth. The truth of your word. Lord, help us to never be led by our feelings. But our help us to control our feelings with the truth. That we would be led by the truth of your word. Father, help us to be people who long and desire, as the psalmist says. Those who desire and delight in the truth. Father, give us hearts that meditate upon your word. And Lord, help us to get rid of any impure thoughts. Any thoughts that are not right, that are not true, that are not honorable that are not praiseworthy. Lord, help us to discipline our minds to think rightly, to think upon the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for Christ who came and said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said that because he is. He is the only way, the only way to you. 
Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning that does not know you, that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone who went to a cross to pay the penalty for their sin and to set them free from sin so that they could live in the truth. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us, that you by your spirit would mold us and shape us to be biblical thinkers who would fix our minds upon the truth. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.